Hello and welcome to the latest episode of Filmonomics at Slated. My name is Colin Brown and as your regular podcast host for this series, I've been interviewing prominent filmmakers and executives with the aim of learning how their creative minds tick. The more we understand that thought process, the better all our chances are of navigating that often convoluted journey from story inception to audience reception, including of course any slated pit stops along the way for added fuel and maybe some repairs during those early uphill stages. Now, as we've heard from our podcast guests to date, some of that decision-making in film is undoubtedly instinctual, a reflection of both personal preference and individual company mandates. But much of it is also reactionary, induced by market forces as well as societal pressures and prejudices. Despite all the industry's best intentions with regard to diversity and freedom of storytelling expression, audiences still only get to see what the business world is conditioned into saying yes to. And as Slated's data infographics have repeatedly shown, those gatekeepers seem at their most comfortable when supporting those that look like them in the mirror. All of which brings us to the vital work being done to help correct the resulting distortions when it comes to participation and representation on all sides of the camera. This week's guest, Tessa Blake, is among those on the industry front lines of what is a formidable battle to shift industry perception so that it is a truer reflection of the world it operates in. As the program director of the American Film Institute's Directing Workshop for Women, Tessa oversees a hands-on training program committed to increasing the number of women working professionally in screen directing. When we spoke with her a couple of weeks back, the first reviews just coming in for Patty Jenkins' Wonder Woman gave an early hint that this would indeed be the ceiling-smashing film that has since gone on to gross more than $300 million, and still counting, at the worldwide box office. Overjoyed as she was at the prospect of a female-driven super blockbuster, particularly one directed by an alumna of the AFI Conservatory, Tessa also cautioned against premature backslapping. You know, I mean, it looks like a really awesome movie, but one has to be careful about that. We can feel like the problem is in our rearview mirror because we've made this one bold choice and it worked out incredibly well, or Sofia Coppola just won Best Director at Cannes. And, but, you know, Catherine Bigelow winning an Oscar didn't change things for women in Hollywood. She speaks with some authority here. A journalist before honing her own filmmaking skills at the very AFI workshop she now programs, Tessa wrote a prescient article in the Huffington Post four years after Bigelow won that Oscar. Playfully entitled, I'm blonde, blue-eyed, and the new face of diversity, her think piece spelled out the implications of an entertainment industry where women directed just 4% of studio films and 14% of television. Those were the pitiful numbers in 2014. With all the attention that she and others have helped bring to this glaring imbalance, where are the signs that things are improving since that article, I wondered. It's a great question. So there has been a roar of press about the inequities in Hollywood around both race and gender over the last couple of years. And I, when I wrote that piece, I mean, I was actually a bit on the forefront of that. The conversation had been happening but not as publicly. So there were Martha Lawson, who is a PhD at UC San Diego, the Gina Davis Foundation and the research that they were moving forward, the DGA report. There was um, a consciousness within sort of those of us trying to figure it out either for ourselves personally or for our organizations around the inequities. And then it became a very major story. And I think in part because the ACLU's investigation led to them recommending to the EEOC that there was systemic gender discrimination around female directors. That was the very particular area that they spoke to. Um, 
so where have we been? So the conversation has gotten very loud, very clear. Um, the numbers have been frustrating. So while we're having a ton of conversation about it, we're not seeing um, anything like an instant improvement. To be fair to that, the studios on the film side book their slates years in advance, right? So it's a very big ship to turn and it'll take a while to turn it. On the television side, there has been more measurable progress and I have heard the rumor that in fact this year we'll see even more. So the numbers when I wrote that piece had been effectively flat from the 90s, um, bouncing anywhere between 12% to about 15% of female directors on the television side. They, they are improving and I had my fingers crossed we might even see 20% this year. Um, but film has not improved quickly. Um, and I have a lot of theories about why that's true. So we're newly in a place where there's a lot of conversation, but there's not as much movement as many of us would like. It's worth emphasizing what is at stake here. This is not just about making sure that women, minorities, and those economically deprived attain equal access to this extraordinary profession. It's also about making sure all elements of society see themselves portrayed on screen through their own lenses of authenticity. As Tessa's article pointed out, what we see informs who we are, and the way we see each other on the screen deeply impacts how we treat each other in life, an issue that seems to gain urgency with every passing day. So given all that, why is television just that little bit more diverse than film? Is this a statistical blip, or a reflection of somewhat greater enlightenment on the part of more nimble-minded network cable and streaming platforms better attuned to the prevailing zeitgeist? And if so, which way are the trend lines pointing? I will start by saying one of the frustrating numbers actually on the television side a couple of years ago, maybe in fact last year, was this sort of frustrating thing where you had about 15% women directing television um, overall, but then also the first time director number was about 15% for women as well. So that was very frustrating because in theory, all of the potential candidates directing their first episode of television are coming from the same pool. They're coming from shorts and film festivals and features and festivals and their cinematographers on the show or their script supervisors on the show or their editors on the existing show. And those are the typical people getting a break on the TV show. So why shouldn't that number at least be 50-50, right? Because the pool in theory is the same. There are many women coming out of film schools, there are men. That I will point to television and say, what we had in some cases was that women were working more, but not more women were working, right? So the, the, the women who had been vetted, the women who were considered credible, the women who had a long list of credits, they have been over the last couple of years working around the clock, and, and many of them are my friends, and I'm super, super grateful. <laughs> you know, I'm so glad they're getting the opportunity to have the kind of career they ought to have. But often in industry, people are talking about pipeline problems on equity in terms of uh, women and people of color, but I would say that we have a spigot problem. <laughs> you know, we have a we're really right from the beginning having challenges. Now, I, I believe that that is changing in television so that so we're not just having a kind of false portrait of the same women working a lot, which I think is fabulous, but it would be great overall if we're going to look at this problem holistically for women to be getting equitable opportunities at the beginning. I'll be really interested to see where that number is this year when the DGA releases their report, which they should be doing in the next few weeks. But Back to addressing the question of where is the discrepancy between film and television. So one of the things I like to think about 
and I spend a lot of time talking about are the forces of unconscious bias. So, you know, bias takes a lot of forms. And I think the most pernicious of which is unconscious bias in Hollywood. And it's actually one of the things that I flagged in that Huffington Post piece, though somewhat comedically. I didn't think there were any white straight guys in the halls of Hollywood twirling their mustaches saying, aha, we're keeping the women out. I believe that we live in a fairly enlightened industry in many ways. There's a, a lot of cultural conversation. Um, so why in this industry that is considered by many to be highly liberal, um, why are we one of the worst industries? You know, what is, what is at work where it is easier for me to become a welder than to become a female director? You know, like what are the forces here? So um, I think what happens is that you know, unconscious bias is a cognitive process. It's not a moral failing. And often our unconscious bias is directly at odds with our conscious belief system. This comes from our primal brain. And, and when our ancestors heard the crack of a branch behind them, they ran. They didn't stop to examine their prejudices against Kodiak bears. You know, they got out of there. Like, we are descended from the nervous people. And that's a great thing. I'm delighted. However, the way that that plays out in our contemporary industry is that as the stakes get higher, and in film, the stakes are exceptionally high, right? And there's tremendous amount of money, there are jobs on their line, there are things at risk. You go with the guy who you went with last time, or weirder still, you go with the guy who looks like the guy who you went with last time. Because that's what your unconscious bias tells you to do, to reach for some level of safety and security, even if it's false, even if the evidence shows that that guy didn't do such a great job last time, or that women-led projects do better overall financially. That's where we have the gap between our evidence and our action, is in the space of unconscious bias. And I think in television, the stakes are high overall, but per episode, if someone is a terrible director on the episode, that is bad for the show, but it is not catastrophic. If there's a bad director for a film, that can be catastrophic, and millions and even hundreds of millions of dollars can go south with that. And I think those are the factors that are at work in the two parallel sides of our industry. The potential for massive write-downs on a big-budget failure means that the few women who are given the directorial reins on a potential studio franchise know that all eyes are upon them. Not only are their own careers on the line, but so also the careers of other talented women in an insecure industry ever quick to revert to its default modes. There is even less room for failure here than with male-driven films, which explains why so much breathless anticipation and anxiety accompanied Wonder Woman in the run-up to its trailblazing success. Films such as Hunger Games and Frozen had already demonstrated that films sold on their female protagonists could enjoy overwhelming cross-gender appeal. And the likes of Catherine Hardwick, Elizabeth Banks, Nancy Myers, Sam Taylor-Johnson, Anne Fletcher, Betty Thomas, Phyllida Lloyd, Mimi Leder, Amy Heckling and Nora Ephron have all directed hugely successful live-action films. But what about a comic book superhero studio tentpole both directed by a woman and headlining a powerful female lead. Now this is uncharted territory. Oh, I'm so excited about Wonder Woman. Yeah, so Patty Jenkins, who is an AFI graduate on the conservatory side, not the directing workshop for women's side, um, who is somebody I've met a couple of times and, and think the world of, you know, she previously was attached to Thor 2. And, you know, ultimately she decided against moving forward with that film because she recognized um, how impactful having the first 
female franchise director would be. And she knew she had to really deeply believe in it and believe that she was the best director for it. And at some point in the development process of Thor, this is as I understand it, I don't have this intimate knowledge from her, but from interviews, she determined that it wasn't a great fit. Obviously she's determined on Wonder Woman, but it is a great fit. And Patty is super responsible, not just as a storyteller, which she's a phenomenal and rigorous and an extraordinary storyteller, but she's also really aware that in many ways she's absolutely in this realm. She's our pioneer, you know, and she's she really has embraced making this film the best film it could possibly be as a filmmaker. But she also recognizes as a female filmmaker, the stakes are higher. You know, I mean, it looks like a really awesome movie. And I think that does begin to change. One has to be careful about that. And Malcolm Gladwell has an interesting podcast on um, novelty hires or novelty um, so we can feel like the problem is in our rearview mirror because we've made this one bold choice and it worked out incredibly well, or Sofia Coppola, just one best director it can. And, but, you know, Catherine Bigelow winning an Oscar didn't change things for women in Hollywood. We may learn a lot more when it comes time to make the inevitable Wonder Woman sequel. As it happens, Patty Jenkins was never signed to do a follow-up film, even though star Gal Gadot did have an option in place to reprise her role when the project went into production. In interviews, Jenkins has said she is keen to direct a second film, and has even mapped out its story, but those negotiations have not apparently started yet. And when they do, her negotiating leverage will surely be quite considerable. Clearly Warner Brothers were not prepared for the level of success that Wonder Woman enjoyed. While this is further proof of Hollywood's tracking deficiencies, it's not a direct reflection of its gender prejudice. Reports suggest that it is standard practice at Warner Brothers to only offer one-picture deals for directors taking on a big-budget studio film for the first time. The catch-22 here, of course, is women have not been offered such films until now. So, other than Patty Jenkins, women are invariably making those leaps for the first time. The industry dynamic has to change from the ground up. And this is where the AFI, now celebrating its 50th year, has been playing such a seminal role. So what can we do, what can the American Film Institute do, and particularly the Directing Workshop for Women do, in terms of um, compensating for the way in which the industry does business as usual? And I think one of the things I really want to say is that there's been a tremendous amount of desire and will as I go around to the studios and the networks, you know, and, and you, we've seen very dramatic examples of that. So for example, John Langrath, who runs FX, one of the DGA reports came out a couple of years ago and FX was among the worst in terms of gender balance. And, you know, as I understand it, he was like, well, let's fix that. <laughs> you know, I don't, that's bad. And he pushed back with all his executives and the executives pushed back with all the showrunners and they're the best. They have the best gender representation of any network. And it came from a very clear declaration and then a lot of work internally to make that happen. In television, in order to get your first episode of television, there's so many gatekeepers saying yes and no to every hire from um, the showrunner to the producing director to the line producer to the studio to the network um, to other producers involved production companies so the tricky part of getting your first episode is that you have to have someone with enough passion for you and enough political capital that they can push through all of the hesitation and say I really know she can do it and if she can't do it I take the blowback on that so that's a lot of will and desire and political capital which is why it mostly comes through 
people you know, relationships in the industry. That's how you begin to work in television. Ryan Murphy has done an incalculable good by starting the Half Foundation, and in that, he and his partners, Tanase Popa, with whom I work, identified directors who were absolutely ready and deserving for an episode, who had not yet had that relationship with political capital to push them through the process. And Ryan Murphy, who had never met, for example, Maggie Kiley before she came as part of the Half Foundation, gave her a job on Scream Queens because he knew and believed she could do it. So that upended the typical process. That was disruptive to the typical process in an incredible, vital, and invigorating way. And John Landgraf's move was incredibly impressive as well. So we're all looking analytically at where are the gaps? How do the agents participate? How can we compensate for the fact the executives are not seeing this these women in front of them? How do we work around that? And um, and I've been really heartened by the kind of commitment and intelligence to beginning to reshape the industry and compensate for business as usual by constructing programs that are effective. Listening to all this made me wonder whether the directing workshop's role stretches beyond guided instruction on funding, filming, and finishing one's directorial project, and into the realm of psychologically arming participants for the industry realities ahead. Does Tessa and her team prep women directors on how best to present themselves and their work to an industry that puts up those unconscious barriers to their advancement. Yes, that's so perceptive, Colin. Yes, we do. <laughs> we, um, in general, I think there was an idea from the 70s that um, fabulous filmmakers would rise like cream to the top, right? So you could just educate people and then they would go out and make their work. And if they were Martin Scorsese, they would be identified and advanced into the industry as they should be. And that philosophy just doesn't work when you're dealing with a population uh, against which there's systemic, unconscious, but systemic discrimination. Um, and so we very carefully and very thoughtfully look toward how to instruct uh, women, in our case, um, how to deal with the obstacles. And I teach an unconscious bias workshop so that we all become very conscious of what that looks like and how that plays out and how we participate in it. You know, there was a great, I think it was a Hewlett Packard study done years ago where Hewlett Packard wanted to advance. They had equal number of junior executives, male and female, and they thought, well, why is not that not reflected inherently then at the higher level? Let's fix it by hiring internally because we know we're starting with 50-50, so we should end up with 50-50. And then th that process continued and there was no change in their numbers and they brought a consultant in to look at it. And what they determined was that the, the internal job description would go out and it would have a list of requirements and the women would look at that list of requirements and say, oh, I can do that. I can do that. Oh, no, oh, no. I'm not so, I'm not as good at that. I'm not, I'm not qualified for this would be their assessment. And the men would look at the job description and go, yeah, awesome. Let me give it a shot. Right. And that is on us. That is on women. We need to be more fearless, allow for more rejection. I mean, this is a whole complex suite of things. But one of the ways we get to it, too, is not by pure instruction so much as by bringing in amazing female artists who have carved careers in the industry to talk about how they navigated those careers. And we have exceptional, experienced directors um, coming in year after year, they all speak to the question of how they navigated their careers and implicit in that is how they navigated them as women.
So one of the things we're trying to inculcate is the career and the profession is different if you only see a 15% representation or on the film side, studio film side, more like a 4% representation. Inevitably, navigating that career is different than navigating it if you're a majority. Part of the reason I'm here is because I owe such a tremendous debt of gratitude to the Directing Workshop for Women and the American Film Institute. This is an extraordinary and exceptional program in, inside of an extraordinary conservatory education. And I've been a director all my life and my husband and I are a writing team for television where we um, were able to develop a lot of projects for television, though none of them ultimately went. And I hit a pivot point where I missed the athleticism of directing so deeply. And I feel completely grateful that I was able to get into this program. And then everything that had been sort of intuitive to me as a director um, went through an incredible filter of the education. And I have come out the other side feeling tremendously equipped for the rigors of what is a tough industry, irrespective of your gender or racial identity. No matter who you are, it's tough. And to feel the presence and the sort of um, support of a great education that was very dimensional in all the ways that we've just discussed has allowed me to go out the door with the kind of confidence that I've needed to pursue it and to do a good job by it and to love it. In more ways than one, filmmaking is indeed a confidence trick. So often it seems that success in such a competitive industry comes to those who are most adept at innate salesmanship and vocal self-promoting. Yet this is itself an exaggerated cliché. There are just as many examples of successful filmmakers, producers and executives, men and women alike, that exude a quiet confidence as there are outsized type A personalities. But even quiet confidence can be hard to build if you come from a place of self-doubt. I don't want to suggest that all women suffer from this, but we certainly have enough evidence that as an aggregate we do. And it's, I, I also think that when you're in a minority, it, it's actually incumbent on you to be better equipped for it. Now, that doesn't mean more talented because I don't even know what that means, right? But it does mean your preparation and your persistence and your longevity. I had a documentary feature film that premiered at South By and then went on to play theatrically, right? Which is sort of a rare fate for a documentary. So I had a kind of a moment, right? And it was a while ago now. And in that moment, and I had done a bunch of theater, I felt equipped for narrative, and I, I took a round of agent meetings, as you do then, when people care about you, and um, and I said, you know, I, I'm really interested in pursuing television, and to a number, they all went, ugh, that's really hard. You know, and no one said, great, let's figure it out, <laughs> or, you know, and my response to them saying that then is very different than somebody saying that to me now. So then I was like, oh, they must mean it's very hard for you. Like you're not equipped for this, right? Now, in point of fact, I don't think they were necessarily saying it personally to me. They were saying it's very hard to break your first episode, just as we discussed a minute ago. But I, I at that time in my life took that personally, right? So I thought, well, I'll just take my marbles and go home to New York where I understand things. You know, <laughs> years later came back out to LA. And now when somebody says to me, gosh, that's gonna be really hard, I now say, it's great. Let's roll up our sleeves. No part of that do I take personally anymore. I mean, in fact, maybe to a flaw, you know, and I don't even care anymore. Um, but I, I do think that that we have a cultural history of women internalizing rejection and personalizing rejection, and we're in an industry replete 
with rejection. And so we have to do the math on that. Like, how do we equip ourselves for the level of rejection that will be constant ongoing? And how do we continue to grow as filmmakers and storytellers inside of that? So, yes, confidence, while not something I think can be taught directly, is gained by, you know, getting better at your craft and having the opportunity to practice more. So confidence, I find that word a little bit tricky because I think there's an idealized construct of what it means to be confident and that is that buoyant person who knows exactly what they want and are are decisive but there are all sorts of kind of monikers that go with confidence and i think instead for me the true turn was feeling a foundation feeling the sense that i had earned where i was and that i could take who i was and apply it to the craft similarly leadership is one of those complicated words too and i think we have a very male heteronormative association with leadership. And that is, you know, somebody who's very strong willed, who's loud voiced, who's, who's, you know, bossy, which by the way, I'm totally pro bossy and I think bossy is awesome. But we have this associative bias, right? So when we say the word leadership, that's what we think of. And I want to reframe some of the construct of leadership to think of it in part about offering the people around us safety right? So leadership can be very soft voiced, but it creates an environment where everyone else is permitted to do their very best work. And that to me is foundational leadership. The film industry is itself partly to blame here for the way that we think of film directors and leader archetypes in general. When portrayed on screen, they're so often mythologized as visionary commanders in chief, barking orders to all those around them. When in fact, we all know that some of the most effective team leaders can also be introverted consensus builders. If you're born shy, you might never think that the director's chair belongs to you. Yet another reason why multi-dimensional screen representation is so important. Yeah, I mean, one of the things I always like to talk about is that you can be exactly who you are and be a director. You know, now there's there, there are skills and strengths. There's perception. If you are soft-spoken, you may have to make a case for yourself in a different way. We all have our own obstacles, but you can be exactly who you are. You don't have to become another thing to be a director. There are places in the industry that might be better than others. You know, it's all there. There are many things to think about in terms of our own relationship to the career and our own relationship to the craft. But we get to be who we are and figure it out. I mean, one of the reasons diversity is tricky is because it actually really profoundly changes things. It's not simple, actually. You know, when you allow for um, gender diversity, racial diversity, LGBTQ diversity, you start to reshape the way that a set feels. You reshape the way that the industry feels. And, you know, I think it's subtle. And over time, I think we all become the lobsters that were in the pot cooking, you know, and so we don't realize we've changed by the end of it. But, you know, Jill Soloway has made such a dramatic shift in the way that a television show works and is shot. I mean, it's also adhering to proper business practices and being a very strong commercial output. So she is working in, you know, a, a kind of capitalist structure. But, you know, her sets have broken all the usual norms of a set environment, in part because she embraced as many forms of diversity as she could. That word diversity has become the shorthand we all tend to use for the inclusion of individuals regardless of their age, gender identity, race, ethnicity, religion, and sexual orientation. But as recent elections have reminded us, 
we are also a world divided by economic disparities, which means there are entire segments of society who just don't have access to the means of production, let alone the belief that their stories should be told and that they should be the ones telling them. So what can the film industry do to beat an effective path to those doors? I mean, that's a really great question. And it's something we give real thought to here. So our program is tuition free. And that is predicated on the generosity of people like the Will and Jada Smith Family Foundation, who, uh, among others, has asked us to think a lot about economic diversity, as well as racial diversity. We have amazing other sponsors, um, Lifetime, Universal, and I mean, we have incredible support, but I point to Will and Jada Smith in particular, because they have been a real driver of continuing to provoke those deeper and more complicated diversities. And the reason it's more complicated is because film costs money. At the Direction Workshop for Women, you, you must have worked in the arts for at least three years. You must have directed a narrative sample before. Those are a couple of our requirements. That means we have adult women. So we are at what we're asking our participants to do, our filmmakers to do, is to step out of how they made money for four months and come to us. It's a year-long program, but there are four months where you really are unable to work. And then, like most of us in the arts, you can go back to working and finishing your film, right? So you can keep juggling. Um, but the we're also asking them to raise between twenty and $30,000 to make their films, right? So that that means you have to be in a community where that's a possibility. It means you have to have a, a sense of your ability to do that, which is, I would say, entitlement, but in the non-pernicious way or the non-pejorative sense, right? So we have working women who are stepping away from their jobs, not earning the income they need to earn for four months and raising twenty dollars to $30,000, right? So there's a huge burden. So when I say we're tuition-free, I'm hugely grateful to be able to offer the education and the support that we, we do as a result of the sponsorship from the industry and the American Film Institute itself. But we are really clear about the burden that that is and that that limits, inherently limits the pool of women that we're attracting. Now, by the way, this year's class from the perspective of both economic and racial diversity is the most diverse we've ever had. And it is in part because the Will and Jada Smith Family Foundation provoked us and said, go deeper. Get, get a more diverse palette, think about this more broadly, do more outreach, right? So that is incumbent on us as well, you know, as part of our job to not just let people apply to our program and self-identify as being the kind of person who can come into the program, but that we need to go and seek out uh, filmmakers with stories to tell. That's a complicated and long-winded way of saying we are thinking constantly about how do we get to the, the the naughtier, more complicated forms of diversity in this industry, which has to do with like, can you step out of your job for four months? And the answer for a lot of people is no. But I think that that is what is fantastic about being storytellers, right? Is that we are pushing against larger forces, but stories are so impactful, right? If we can take the lead we can, you know, we can change it in this um, very insidious way, <laughs> you know, we can change it and begin to see perception differently. But I think it's really important toward the, the earlier question you asked about Patty Jenkins and Wonder Woman or Barry Jenkins and Moonlight, right? We, I, I want everyone always to be very, very cautious about the sort of standout models because it can make us feel like these issues are in our rearview mirror, but they're not and they won't be until we're looking at true equality. 
You've been listening to Tessa Blake, Program Director of the AFI's Directing Workshop for Women, and an award-winning filmmaker and TV director in her own right. To be sure, so many of the ingrained problems she's been confronting in her efforts to see more women directors like herself enjoy fruitful careers are not exclusive to the entertainment world. Silicon Valley, too, has a major diversity problem, and like Hollywood, the smallest of victories in the tech world are often over-enthusiastically celebrated as evidence of larger and even permanent change. But if we are ever to achieve anything close to parity, we will need a constant succession of such small victories. That much became clear once again at this year's Cannes Film Festival, where the aforementioned Will Smith served as one of the festival jurors for the main competition. In his final press conference, he flagged up the lack of black characters he saw during his time at Cannes. And two of his fellow jurors, Jessica Chastain and Marin Ada, the German filmmaker who made Tony Erdmann, also expressed their dismay at how so many female characters in the festival films that they saw seemed just there to react to the men around them. So while it is true that Sofia Coppola won Best Director at Cannes, and Jane Campion's second season of Top of the Lake eclipsed everything else at the festival in terms of critical euphoria, we just cannot be too complacent. The winner of last year's Camera Door, the prize given to the director of the best first-time film at Cannes, was also won by a woman, Huda Benyamina, a French filmmaker born to Moroccan parents. In interviews, Benyamina had suggested, perhaps only half in jest, that the real sign of progress will come when women have the power to make as many mediocre films as men. Or as Tessa herself put it to me, we'll know we've hit true diversity when we have female hacks too. That's all from me and slated for this week's episode. I encourage all listeners to check out a widely shared data infographic that we did on gender disparity that paints this problem and some of its culprits in a startlingly new light. You can find it on our Medium Filmonomics channel. And to also encourage everyone who is so minded to please submit iTunes reviews of this podcast series. It will help spread the word about these interviews and increase our own chances of breaking down industry doors for those left marginalized. 